the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to The Dennis Prager Show, and I have been looking forward to this uh, interview for some time now. A book has just been published titled God's Secretaries, The Making of the King James Bible. Nothing has shaped Western thought as much as the Bible. Nothing. I mean, even an atheist has to acknowledge that. So let's get that straight. And no translation has shaped the Western world like the King James translation. Now, I got to tell you, and I have to tell the author of the book, Adam Nicholson, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You're in Sussex, England right now, correct? I am. So so you put your day in already, so uh, you're nice and relaxed. (laughs) I trust you're smoking a pipe and there is a, uh, a bulldog at your side feet up by the fire yes exactly that's right whiskey in hand. <laughs> that's it good the image okay. is the image is perfect <clears throat> with a with a picture of winston churchill right behind you <laughs> all right now i know exactly where you are for all i know he's in a pub with you know three women uh, next to him who knows <laughs> anyway thank you for joining me uh, your book uh, is uh, as i said earlier uh, god's secretaries just published by in fact our mutual publisher harper collins now, by the way, let me just tell you, uh, may I call you Adam? Of course you can. But, uh, no, no, no. If you prefer Mr. Nicholson, I'm happy with that. No, I prefer Adam. <laughs> okay, very good. Adam, you, uh, I'm sure you've been interviewed by many, and I hope you have, because this book deserves wide, wide distribution. Uh, but uh, I bet that I'm one of the few uh, radio talk show hosts or television uh, commentators that have interviewed you who actually knows biblical Hebrew. So uh, I come to this. I think you're this... the only one. <laughs> okay, you're yeah. probably the only one in the world. Aren't you? <laughs> Do I call you Mr. Prager? Uh, no, I've earned Mr. as a result of I that. I think so. I think it's Mr. from now on. Isn't it? <laughs> that would you're be way, a... <laughs> way, way ahead of me on that. <laughs> that would be the first time, though, where the interviewer calls the guest by his first name, and the interviewer gets called by his surname. <laughs> no, you well, please. What can you teach me, Mr. Prager? <laughs> <laughs> You're a good man. All right. Anyway, no, no, please, please call me Dennis. In any event, uh, uh, so I come to this with tremendous interest, uh, uh, obviously. And I have, I am always on the search. I have about 10 different translations of the Bible in English. And, and I, I got to tell you, there are some that are somewhat more accurate at times. And I'm going to talk to you about that. But nothing approaches the King James Version for the sense of majesty that the original does have. And so uh, I am terribly interested in this, how it came about. So let's, let's, first of all, I always like to ask authors, why did you write this? Well, I came to it uh, from a very odd route. A, a couple of years ago, well, in fact, in 1999, 
I was writing a book for the British government about a disastrous project they had called the Millennium Dome. I don't know if word of the Millennium Dome reached you over there. Well, it didn't reach but me personally. I can't speak for all my listeners. It was a, yeah. a huge, vastly expensive, costing at one billion pounds. Uh, you know, one and a half billion dollar right. project to make a kind of grand celebration of uh, the British national spirit. All the threads of uh, British life were meant to be unified in this great circus tent in Greenwich in East London. Mm-hmm. And I was employed by the government to, well, not to beat about the bush, to propagandize for it, to write an account of it as the most marvelous thing that ever happened. It was, in the end, a complete disaster, full of uh, terrible, bitter arguments and uh, kind of a popular failure, terribly criticized in the press and generally a disaster. And when I was doing it, a friend of mine said, of course, the thing you should be writing about is the King James Bible, because the King James Bible in the early 17th century was also a great central government project aiming to unify all the different threads in the nation at the time, bringing together vast numbers of very diverse people. And out of that, out of those same circumstances which have made this modern disaster um, the most beautiful book ever written in the English language emerged. And how did that happen? And I think that 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 is the question at the heart of my book. Well, that's a fascinating beginning. It, it, like so many things that happened in our lives, it happened from uh, from out of nowhere, as it were. Yeah, it's exactly. the last thing you expected, obviously, then. You know, it is remarkable uh, when going through your book that I never, ever expected a committee to ever produce anything good. No, well, that is the great curiosity. They, the, the king and his archbishop gathered together these 50-odd uh, divines, uh, academics, uh, bishops, people who wanted to be and would be bishops, court politicians, scholars, uh, experts in Hebrew, many misters among them. And uh, from that very, very and deliberately diverse group, this great Jacobean music emerged. And I think the reason that or one of the reasons that from a committee uh, something great could emerge in the 17th century is that there was a sense of authority alive in Jacobean England, which we don't quite have. They believed in uh, authority to a degree that I think we would now find extraordinary and very deeply illiberal. You know, Jacobean England is a place where people can get... Uh, executed for not agreeing with central government ideology. I mean, in a way, it is an authoritarian state, like a 20th century authoritarian system. And I think that if it had been a modern committee, uh, there would have been far, far more disagreement than there was then, simply because you had to obey. There is one central state ideology and you have to obey it if you're to get on in the world, and at the edges if you're even to survive. And therefore what? There, because there was authority, therefore the committee, what, would listen to one voice? Yes, I mean... And I whose, whose the, voice was that? King James I? Yes, the, I think the, the 
seventeenth century idea of authority is that unless you have a very very uh, well established and uh, unchallengeable authority and order, you risk anarchy. There is no idea that individuals should have freedom of conscience or freedom really to think or do what they want. The, the governing idea of the time is this very, very conservative one, that you have to subscribe to a, a steeply hierarchical structure which begins at the bottom, obviously, with peasants and laborers and rises up through the ranks of society through the court and these people who are actually involved in this translation, onto the king and onto God. And it is one continuous, integrated, organic whole. And if you, if you start to eat away at that, as of course Puritanism does, you know, Puritanism essentially says there is no need for this hierarchy. Uh, any individual can just have direct access to God. You don't need bishops, archbishops, Maybe you don't even need kings. And those people, those kind of what we would think of now as sort of free-thinking Puritans, were seen as the most terrifyingly dangerous people uh, in English society. By the way... And of this... course, England booted them out. Right, and, and we got them. And, and you got them. And we got them. <laughs> and, and, right, and we got the United States as a result. You now, did. Now, now, it's interesting, though, because in modern liberal, and I don't use that word politically, I'm using it in your term, liberal, illiberal. In modern liberal parlance, Puritan is almost synonymous with arch-conservative and hierarchical and authoritarian. That is interesting, uh, an interesting shift, isn't it? Because at the heart of Puritanism, and in fact, I think you could say even at the heart of Christianity, there is this very subversive message uh, which dispenses with worldly authority. And and makes worldly authority insignificant in 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 the eyes of God, even in the eyes certainly, you know, in the light of a direct connection between the individual conscience and God. So American authority is an irrelevance. American American individualism and liberty then it, it owes a great deal to the Puritans. It certainly does. I mean, I think that we, all of us, completely misinterpret Puritanism. I mean, there is an idea that Puritanism, for example, in the 17th century, is against sex and against fleshly pleasures. But but these people are very, very involved with the idea that sex within marriage is uh, a beautiful and creative thing. They write and translate for example, the Song of Songs, which is a highly erotic poem, translated by some of the most Puritan translators involved on this, uh, in the lushest and most <laughs> exotic way you can think of. We'll be back in a moment. Adam Nicholson, and you can imagine if he's this well spoken, how well his book reads. God's secretaries. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Dennis Prager. Hi, everybody. My guest in England is Adam Nicholson, who has just published through HarperCollins here in the United States, The Secretaries, The Making of the King James Bible. And even if uh, you are not religiously inclined, it is a fascinating read because I can't think of a book that has come close to influencing our society as much as the Bible and as much as the King James Version. Now, this is done by, by... 
order of King James I in the early 1600s, right? Yeah. Now, it, why did he... What was wrong with pre-existing English translations? Well, England had got in a terrible muddle. It didn't really know whether it was a uh, Protestant Reformed country or um, a sort of hangover from a, from a Catholic past. And England had yo-yoed all through the 16th century one way and another, sort of, and had ended up with a very Protestant uh, theology. Uh, and a very Catholic uh, ch- form of church organization and, and way of going about things in church. And it had ended up with two Bibles, one the sort of popular Bible, which was very Calvinist and uh, very well done. I mean, a beautiful translation, but very anti-King. It's well, always, how, do you, uh, how do you have uh, either a translation is a translation or it's not? How do you have... Well, for example, the, uh, this, this Bible called the Geneva Bible, it had been done by some Englishmen exiled in Geneva, uh, always <clears throat> translates the word king in the Old Testament, which appears more than 400 times as tyrant. <laughs> no and, kidding! That's yeah, like, that, that is and the first political the correctness. This, this was the great Bible of 16th century England. It was Shakespeare's Bible, which is, you know, we were talking about subversion before. It's one of the most subversive books ever written, basically saying that kings don't mean anything in the light of God. And so the government, the Elizabethan government, had produced another Bible to rival it called the Bishop's Bible, which was very kind of proper in supporting the church establishment, it had a huge portrait of Elizabeth on its title page, no picture of God. And... Uh, but it was a dreadful translation. It, the phrase that appears in the King James Bible as cast thy bread upon the waters, for example, is translated in the Bishop's Bible as lay thy bread upon wet faces. And that doesn't quite have the same ring to it. So, so something had to be done. James, you know, he couldn't tolerate the anti-King Bible and no one in the country could tolerate the hopeless uh, government Bible. So this was a project to make a, a Bible, which is an unbelievably central thing to do. You know, it's, it's like the kind of code for everything you might do or think or any way you might live. So the Bible is central to government. And he, has, he commissioned the Bible, which everyone can subscribe to, but doesn't undermine his own standing as king. Oh, so that is, so that's how it came about. This it's was a way, to, as, as you pointed out originally, to unify the contrasting, c- c- as it will, as it were, Catholicized English with the newly Protestantized English. That is the idea, that in some ways it, it bridges these very, and very it, and opposite it, categories. And it bridges it through the means of majesty and accuracy, is that it? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is, it's, a very, it's a very conscious program to make a Bible that will suit everyone. And it's a question of rhetoric, really, of style, of the way it goes about it. And the Bible, over and over again, makes, uh, makes a translation which is very clear and accessible using very ordinary language. I think there are only something like 10,000 words used in the King James Bible, as against 
some 25,000 mm. in Shakespeare, for example. So it's very ordinary language. Though to but us it's, it's extremely flowery language, to well, us no, today. But it's set in this very majestic and very sonorous tone. Mm-hmm. Was, it so, was it sonorous to the Englishman of that day? Yeah, it is not. Not, to, not only that, to us. It's not the English that was spoken on the street at the time. It's the, the sort of English which these translators imagined God might speak. Right. It were, is sort of godly English. Which brings me to this question. Were all the members of these committees that made the translation, were they all believers? Undoubtedly. I mean, there were, there were atheists in, uh, in uh, early modern England, but there were very, very few. And every single one of of these translators would have had no, would almost have not understood the question. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like saying to to us, "Do you believe in physics?" Right. It's right. how the world works. Yes, yes, and 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 I have to say, it's reflected in the translation. They they you feel that they there's trepidation before the holy of holies when you read the King James version. You do. I mean, I think that uh, it's difficult in some ways for us, particularly, I think, in England, perhaps more in England than in America, to realize how central this is to to the way in which that world works. It is much more like, I think, uh, I mean, the place of the Bible is much more like the place of the Quran in an Islamic country now. Mm-hmm. and the place of the Bible in a modern, mm-hmm. secular democracy. Mm-hmm. It, is the, it is the sort of DNA of the culture. And so these people are addressing the, the central document and the immense care they took to be uh, loyal to the original text is really it's an awe-inspiring sight. I mean, the, the precision with which they... Um, need to transmit those original meanings is an extraordinary and humbling thing. One of the members of the committee, if I remember correctly, actually spoke about a dozen languages. Is that right? Yeah. The, what, the, great, the greatest of all the translators, a man called Lancelot Andrews, is said to have spoken 15 modern languages and six ancients. I mean, it's, 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 it boggles the mind. It boggles the mind, but I mean, Andrews is a very good example of, of how different they are from us. This great scholar who is Bishop of uh, Ely and Winchester and Chichester, one great big sort of administrative job after another, uh, a court politician, a member of the King's Council, like the King's Cabinet, you know, central politician. Uh, one of the great prose writers of his day, as well as being this great scholar, making himself a fortune on the side, siphoning off money from the from the bishoprics that he held, um, throwing parties for the king, which cost three thousand pounds at a time when a, when a vicar would be paid twenty pounds a year in salary. He is a sort of multiple multiple figure larger than life as we say he simply doesn't exist today apart from you of course mr prague (laughs) you're you're quite charming adam nicholson (laughs) adam nicholson i have to meet you one day adam nicholson (laughs) god's secretaries is the book the making of the king james bible and uh i i can't recommend it too highly to you we'll be back in a moment 
I want to ask about the word thou. We shall return. This is the Dennis Prager Show. I'm Dennis Prager, and I welcome you back. I am talking to Adam Nicholson. He's in England. I'm in uh, California, USA. His book is God's Secretaries, The Making of the King James Bible. And in case you're curious, to say that you don't have to be religious to enjoy this book, I, best, I guess I could best put it in this way. There was a, a, a large article on the book in The New Yorker, which is as resolutely modern and secular as any magazine can be, and this is how they described the book. Uh, it is a popular book as popular books used to be, a breeze rather than a scholarly sweat, but humanely erudite, elegantly written, passionately felt, and jauntily unfootnoted, alas. <laughs> I, I'm sure you've seen that. And it was, in fact, a review, it was reviewed quite widely. By the way, I'm going to put my own credibility on the line with you. I, I, you check on Amazon.com. Uh, in America, our our version of it, mm-hmm. and uh, I bet you you will see uh, it rise fairly significantly after your uh, after my listeners hear you. I have a book reading and book buying audience that I'm very proud of, and uh, you uh, your books should uh, be on their list. So uh, you you watch that number. You you you'll get uh, I will. you'll get some satisfaction. I believe. Oh, of course, great. if it goes down, don't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> in any event, the. Uh, I want to ask you, because I've always wondered about this, because, by the way, let me just tell you, when I teach the Bible, which I have been doing for 20 years, uh, from the Hebrew, uh, and when I, when I, but I do it in English, and, and I use a number of translations, I love the King James by far the most. In terms of sheer absolute accuracy, they've done a little better in modern. For example, it really doesn't say, thou shalt not steal. It says, do not steal. But thou shalt not steal is far more powerful, thou shalt and thou shalt not, than do not. But in terms of sheer accuracy, the Hebrew is lo tignov, do not, no steal, period. And so that's why it's good to use, use both. So it, it, it always interested me why they did say thou shalt not steal. Well, thou shalt not steal is uh, about you, isn't it? It's about you, the reader or the listener. Which is true, and the Hebrew is the singular. And, and do and not, the, the that's, a good, that's is, a good point, because... It's a, it's a statement from, you know, the, the divine throne, in a way. But thou shalt not steal has got a kind of personal... Oh, I agree. I much prefer it, I'm saying. But, and you know what? Now that you mention it, the implication in the Hebrew is you, because of the verb. We, we don't have that in English. Do not steal could be you plural or you singular. Right. But in, in, you're right, because it is in the Hebrew the singular of the second person, of you. So that's I, you, you've just actually made a great defense of the thou shalt not. Let me ask you about thou. What was that when, if I met you on a street in England in 1603, would I have said... How art thou feeling? Uh, you might have, and you might not have. It was just on the cusp. That was ch- that was one of the things that was changing. English was in, in an incredibly fluid state, and thou uh, did have an element of antiqueness about it. Even then, but, it, but even then, but it wasn't uh, uncurrent. 
Uh-huh. It, it was just on the change. And I think you can see that throughout the King James Bible, that where they have the choice, they on the whole choose the older form, the sort of form which, interestingly, their fathers and grandfathers might have used. Was and thou, think, what was thou? Was there, did thou exist along with you? Yes, I mean, thou is is the, the oldest form, and for the second person singular of um, what we now say is you, and it just dropped away in the course of the 17th century, that by the 18th century it would have been thought very curious to use thou. But it's, I mean, I think thou is a great word because it is, in fact, a word of intimacy, isn't it? It's, it's, not a, it's not you, plural, you, the crowd. There is a kind of, you know, closeness between... A oh, that's right. You. In other words, you can be singular or plural, but thou yeah. is only singular. And there is a certain distance oh. in you. You all, it's right, almost. That's so. right, that's right. Oh, this is this is just uh, exhilarating for me. We'll be back in a moment. Uh, Adam Nicholson, N I C O, not C H, N I C O L S O N. Harper Collins, the publisher of the book God's Secretaries. We return uh, in a moment, and we're going to learn a little about King James. Who, by the way, isn't it ironic that that's that's basically all he's remembered for? And what a remembrance it is. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Dennis Prager. I'm Dennis Prager, and I welcome you back. My guest in Sussex, England, is Adam Nicholson. He is the author of the just-published God's Secretaries, The Making of the King James Bible, and as the New Yorker, hardly a religious tome or religious journal, notes uh, it is elegant, erudite, passionate, popular, and jauntily unfootnoted. But that part I put in undertones. I don't know what footnotes. I don't even know what footnotes, frankly, you can use much. It was. Uh, I, I, I'm. It's. I actually do like when there are footnotes in history books, but I'm not sure that this one really needed it. Well, it was a difficult decision to make about footnotes. I mean, footnotes do sort of lend an air of trust to the thing, don't yes, they? Yes, that's right. If you see them, you you know that you can go back to some right. sources. But they do have a way of of making it look like. Uh, a sort of reference book, I think, rather than a, than a story, and I wanted to tell a story. Right, which you do well. Now, let's go to King James himself. So we, we, you really helped me on the thou. I can't tell you, really, this was because I have struggled with that so long. Which do I use, the majestic or the accurate? But there is accuracy in thou shalt not steal because it is directed to the you singular, and I'm, I, I, I very much appreciate that. By the way, there is a an issue that I have raised with my uh, listeners uh, for uh, much of my 20 years on radio, and that is that thou shalt not kill is actually, in modern English at any rate, inaccurate. It's thou shalt not murder, and that is an important distinction because thou shalt not kill would mean that the Ten Commandments uh, came out against uh, uh, Warfare came out for pacifism, even vegetarianism, theoretically, because you can't kill an animal. Did kill, and you may not have the answer to this, did kill in those days imply murder? I don't know. I mean, certainly they had no compunction about killing. You know, they, 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 I think, I think something like 70 death sentences a year were carried out in uh, early 17th century England. And they killed happily enough. 
Uh, I don't know. I think that kill and murder, there is certainly the word murder, uh, is used at the time, and I think they are distinct. So uh, if it I was think... used at the time, then it, it was an unfortunate choice for a great translation. I mean, no translation yes. can be perfect, but it really was. You're uh, right. I don't have the answer to that. I don't know why it doesn't say, thou shalt not murder. Because mm-hmm. the Hebrew makes this very clear distinction. Uh, right. th- there are both, both words there. Anyway, it's just one of those things that has always stuck with me, because I know it has misled a lot of well-intentioned religious people into pacifism, opposition to capital punishment, and so on, which may be fine for other reasons, but not for the reason that the Ten Commandments bans it. James I, tell us a little about him. Was this an intellectual king? He was incredibly intellectual king, the most intellectual person ever to have sat on the English throne. He's the only one ever to have had his works collected in a, in a, in a handsome volume. He was a very, very strange man. He'd, uh, he'd been brought up in Scotland. His, his mother was Mary, Queen of Scots, and she deserted him, ran away to England when uh, he was one year old. And he'd had a a childhood and an adolescence being kidnapped by one faction after another of Scottish nobles, rather violent Scottish nobles, uh, being berated and kicked from one end of Scotland to another by some fearsome uh, ministers of the Scottish Church. And he became uh, a very odd man, that he was very intellectual. In some ways, intellectuality was a sort of retreat for him mm-hmm, from the mm-hmm. real world. From the pain he loved of the hunting. real world. Mm-hmm. He loved young boys. You know, strings of beautiful young boys feature in his life. And uh, and yet, I mean, he's always had a pretty bad press in history as this self-indulgent, gay, uh, incompetent king. But there is a great, great deal to him. He, he had a vision of a kind of um, integrated society of one whole uh, loving kingdom, in effect, peace at peace with itself, um, which is a, a great and dignified dream, and was then. And this Bible, part of the, part of the purpose of this Bible, was to bring about that dream of unity and wholeness, and. People forget that the rest of Europe at the time was riven by these terrible religious wars in France and Germany and all through Central Europe, some of the bloodiest wars ever fought. And James's policy of non-confrontation between uh, divergent parts of the society actually prevented war happening in England until the 1630s, well, by when he was dead and his far less competent son Charles was on the throne. So, in a way, I can think you can think of James as rather a hero for that, hmm. a, a kind of a king who believed in love. Well, obviously he did, since you mentioned the string of boys. <laughs> well, he did. He, right. he was. I mean, he was incredibly self-indulgent. He used to. There's a great story of uh, he was sitting in court one day when a member of the Exchequer walked past with a tray laden with gold coins, three or four thousand pounds worth of gold coins, <laughs> and a beautiful boy was staring at this uh, pile of, of money, open-mouthed, and the king said, why are you staring at that? And he said, because I've never seen anything like it in my life. And the king said, well, have it then. Why don't you have it? Take it to his rooms. 
And I think that's that's just heroic. That's what kings have Well, you know, by the way, this is a very fascinating irony of history because the argument is made frequently, and I have debated this with myself and with my listeners for many years, how important is the private life of public figures? Mm. And, and I have argued that the private life of public figures is less important than most people that I tend to agree with on other matters. And here is a classic example because the most religious Americans and others uh, who are English speakers quote and revere properly the Bible that they call the King James Version with, a, for, with regard to a man whose private life was quite in violation of many of the precepts that they most uh, uh, dearly hold. Yes, I mean, I think the two things are connected in James, that his, uh, you know, his desire for a happy world in some way comes from his delight in life and having great, pleasurable times. Fascinating. The two, the two don't diverge. Wow, wow. All right, we'll be back in a moment for the final, uh, final installment here of my talk with Adam Nicholson, the book God's Secretaries, The Making of the King James Bible. Just when you thought it couldn't get any better, Mike Lindell with MyPillow is launching the MyPillow 2.0. When Mike invented MyPillow, it had everything you could ever want in a pillow. Now, nearly 20 years later, he discovered a new technology that makes it even better. The MyPillow 2.0 has the patented adjustable fill of the original MyPillow, and now with a brand new fabric that is made with a temperature-regulating thread. The MyPillow 2.0 is the softest, smoothest, and coolest pillow you'll ever own. For my listeners, the MyPillow 2.0 is buy one, get one free offer with promo code Prager. MyPillow 2.0 temperature regulating technology is 100% made in the USA and comes with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Just go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listeners square to the buy one, get one free offer. Enter promo code Prager or call 800-761-6302 to get your MyPillow 2.0 now. It's the happy, 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 happy hour. Yes, it is. Ladies and gentlemen, the happiness hour, every Friday, the second hour. No matter what, hail, smiting of the firstborn, frogs, lice, vermin, blood, leftism, no matter what. All right, y'all, join me. It's the happy... Uh oh oh oh! I went too fast. Uh 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 oh! I went too fast. Yes, everybody, it's a dark time we're living in, but you still have to be happy. I know it sounds contradictory, but what is your choice to be unhappy? First of all, you give the bad guys a victory. There, they would be more than happy to know they made you unhappy. Secondly, what good does it do? It's a it, 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 I mean, if you can only be happy in good times, it doesn't say much for the power of happiness. So I am adamant about it, and I've never missed a Friday that I've been on. I mean, some Fridays I'm off, obviously, but I would say 48 out of 52 Fridays a year since 1999, I've done the happiness hour. Because the happy make the world better, and the unhappy tend to make it worse. That's the way it works. I have a great topic for you today. And 
I rarely have a title, so Sean, if you keep, who keeps the sums? You do, right? All right, so here it is, sober fun. That's today's topic, sober fun. My son is very open about it, my second son, who uh, was born to a very heavily drug-addicted birth mother. His late mom and I adopted him the day he was born. Uh, as I have uh, no, I, I attach little to no significance to blood, it uh, has never meant anything to me. He's my son, period, from the day he was born. And I have one biological son, whom I adore as well, obviously. Anyway, the uh, he was he battled alcohol and drugs for a good chunk of his youth, and he's been sober now. I think by I think five years is it? And he said to me something when he first began to be, his uh, sobriety that he couldn't imagine having fun while sober. And that was a a revelation to me, and it opened my eyes to the fact that the idea that you could have fun in life and be sober is, in fact, not a popular idea among many people. You don't have to be an addict to worry that you can't have fun if you're sober. This uh, this issue arose in my latest Dennis and Julie podcast. It comes out Monday. It'll come out on Monday. Parts air on the Salem News Channel this weekend. To see all of them in their entirety, go to the Dennis Prager show on YouTube. Again, we have to have a link at DennisPrager.com. It's a little silly that we don't. I'm telling you, though, these uh, this hour to an hour and a half that I do each week with Julie Hartman is very powerful stuff, and it's it brings out things in me that even though I'm very open on the show, I uh, are parts of me that I just I would never have mentioned, not because I want to hide it, but because it's not brought out of me as she does. And likewise, her. It's it's a it's a remarkable. It's called Dennis and Julie. And this this notion of can you be sober and have fun is a very very big one. It's it's not only the addict who thinks it's impossible. A lot of people think it's impossible. I remember in college when kids would say my peers would say, oh man, when you, you know, when, there's nothing like sex when after, you know, on marijuana or when you're, when you're high on something, whether it's alcohol or a drug. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, you, you need something to enhance the fun 
of, of sex. You, you gotta, I, I, I couldn't believe it. Like it, it isn't fun enough. You needed, you needed an enhancer at 22 years of age. <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't realize what I was confronting the belief that you can't have fun if you're sober. That's really part of that approach was a manifestation of, of that thinking. I have to be high on something. Could be gambling, by the way. It, it, it's not necessarily a drug. Or alcohol. But high... Those things are what really make life exciting and fun. It a lot came together in talking to Julie about this notion of sober fun. It actually arose in a very small way. She was at my house with my wife and me. And she came over to my desk to see what I was looking at on the on the internet. It was, for whatever reason, it was apparent I wasn't working. As I say to you, I take a vacation every day. So she comes over to the computer. <laughs> You'll get a charge out of this. What do you think I was looking at? Stereo something. Very, absolutely a coherent response, something audio equipment. I was looking, (laughs) I'm almost embarrassed to say, (laughs) I was looking at different inks. (laughs) I told you folks, I'm really into fountain pens. And the, the variety of colors that were available with a certain brand and, and, and many brands, she, so she came over and she looks and, I, and sees on the screen all these colors of fountain pen inks. And to my great joy and amazement, she found it fascinating. Just fascinating. <laughs> and I, I, we spent quite a while uh, on these various screens. And she's fallen in love with writing with a fountain pen anyway. And now that she sees, oh, my God, all of these varieties, it's almost an infinite variety of colors, which is half the fun of fountain pen writing is choosing the color ink you have. It's not something you can do with a ballpoint pen. you got a big choice in most ballpoint pens between blue and black. But here it, it was infinite. Uh, she saw a pink that she fell in love with. Not was not my personal favorite for sexist reasons, but anyway, it wasn't. But it was be- it was beautiful in its way. Absolutely, pink's a beautiful color, and that's what hit her. She said, "You, Dennis, you have a lot of sober fun," and I always did. That's why I have recommended on the Happiness Hour hobbies. Hobbies are the perfect example of sober fun. And there's been an absolute decline in in hobbies. 
what does this, what does the youngest generation today do for hobbies? I hear very often video games. I, I'm not sure that that qualifies. It might. That that that's amusement. I don't think that's a hobby. I think it's amusement. Anyway, how do you react? Do you do you hear what I'm saying on the need for sober fun? It's a better life. Has that been a battle in your life? One eight Prager seven seven six. Eight seven seven two four three triple seven six. The Happiness Hour on the Dennis Prager Show. Hi everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call eight hundred seven zero two fifty four hundred. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hi, everybody. Happiness Hour on the Dennis Prager Show. Sober fun is the topic. So, uh, Rick, may I mention you uh, in, in, in the context here? So, Rick, who uh, works on the show next to Sean, periodically punches Sean to make sure that Sean stays on the straight and narrow. Sober fun for both of you, which is a beautiful thing. Uh, anyway, Rick uh, was uh, like like my uh, one of my sons was addicted for many years as a kid, and he came in to say to me, "That's exactly what he feared. Could not imagine getting sober and still having fun." But th- these are not the only. It's not only addicts. The, the I told you about you know, how many kids my age in my 20s would say, oh, yeah, you know, if you have sex, you should really uh, get high first. And then it's really intense. Like sex in your 20s needs an enhancement. It's not enough. And the pursuit of the the adrenaline rush or whatever the chemical description would be is a very big one today. I guess one way of putting my message here on this happiness hour edition 
would be that one should try to get high on life, which I think is very possible. I mean, there is so much available that maybe I'm built differently, but I, I don't I don't think it's that different. The the rush that I feel with music, for example. Now, my, my mine is classical music, but yours may well be another type of music. That does that doesn't provide some some sort of quote unquote high music. A sober high is is being with friends. I have a sober high every week in my Sabbath. I told you it's my secret weapon for my energy, my outlook, my joy. Away a week, a day a week away from everything. Just with just with people, and or family, in other words, friends and or family. If you don't have it, you can't imagine it. It's not something you can imagine. You you have to, you have to experience it. While 99% of the rest of the country was locked down, willingly or forcibly, I was gathered with my same dozen friends every single Friday night as if nothing were happening. That was a very big deal in my life and in, and in the other 11 people's lives. Hobbies afford a sober high or sober fun. That's that's a big trick in life in terms of uh, of happiness. Uh, okay, let's go to Marty in Plymouth, Michigan. Hello, Marty. Hello, Dennis. This is a real honor to speak with you. Thank You're you. on a good topic today. Yep, I know. I, for the grace of God, have been sober for 43 years. How old are you now? How old are you now? I'm 67, so So, I drank all through college. Right, exactly. So 24, you became sober. Okay. Correct. Yep. And what I've discovered is the most important thing is you have to find internal peace first. And then I drank for that enhancement. You know, there's a, a line in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof when um, I think Elizabeth Taylor says to Paul Newman, why do you drink so much? And he says, well, I'm trying to get that click. Well, you only get that click the first time you get high or, like you said, the first time you have sex, the first time you do drugs, and then you're trying to chase it ever thereafter. And so you have to find peace in your heart, and then you can – find joy being doing things by yourself, or I love to bike ride and swim and ski, but I will do those things alone. I don't need anybody to do those with me to have joy. Well, obviously you have found sober fun. I have. Yeah. Oh, I, I, had, I, had I told you when, when you were 23 that you can have sober fun, would you have thought I was out of my mind? Probably. Right. <laughs> okay. That's my plan, yeah, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. I thank you, sir. I do thank you. I've got to move on here. And 
Let's see. David in Deerfield, Wisconsin. Hello. Dennis, pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. You've helped me save my children's lives. You're a good man. How did Um, I help you save your children's lives? Well, I mean, you just speak common sense, and I'm able to... I'm able to impart that to oh, my Oh, good, good. You made my day. Thank you. Yes, yes. One of them's a little off the deep end, but three of them at least are. Well, you know, three for four is batting day. 750. For, yeah. That's, yeah. That's Hall of Fame. So, so I, have, I, have, I have four major hobbies. Um, I'm a semi-professional guitar player. Um, I like studying the Bible. Uh, I play golf, and I brew beer. And I'm probably, two of them I'm typically sober for. I'm sober, and the other two I probably drink when I'm doing them. So. Well, it doesn't mean you're not sober. Are, are, do you drink to get, are you getting drunk? I drink just because I enjoy it. Right, so, um, okay. I'm not, yeah, not falling, not falling. No, I don't like to drink and get okay. inebriated. All right, so they're all sober fun. Yeah. Yeah, but the when I study the Bible, of course, I don't drink. And typically when I'm brewing beer, I don't drink. It, uh, it, it, it seems like if I, um, by the end, by the time that I'm done brewing the beer, though, I am definitely having one. So I find that it comes out better uh, if I hold off. That That's fascinating. Well, thank you very much. Maybe one way of describing this hour's subject is the more sober fun you can have in life, the happier your life will be. And if you can't find sober fun, that's a very serious problem. There are so many avenues. I mean, I didn't mention another one, travel. That's a high. At least for me, and for a lot of people, maybe not for you. Back in a moment. I used to come home late, not a minute too soon. Barking like a dog, howling at the moon. You'd be mad as a nowhere hand. Up all night, wondering where I'd been. I'd fall down and say, come help me, honey. You laughed out loud, I guess you thought it was funny. But I sobered up, I got to thinking, girl, you ain't much fun since I quit drinking. All right, everybody, happiness hour, second hour every Friday. I'm Dennis Prager. The subject is sober fun. Increasingly... Well, I don't know if it's increasingly. I think it is. I'm not, I'm not certain. People are not having fun from life, but from additives. Drugs and alcohol are the most obvious, or gambling, or any any addictive behavior like that. But it's a reliance on adrenaline producers outside of normal life. I mean, friends, sometimes family, if you have good family relations, if you have a good marriage, your marriage, 
you travel, music, hobbies. I mean, there are so many sources of what I call sober fun. It's quite remarkable that people do not find in life itself those fun things, those exciting things even. Okay, I I learned that from people who feared getting sober because they couldn't believe they'd have fun. And I'm going to have fun without drinking? It's almost impossible for the regular drinker to think that. Okay, let's see here. Thinks if someone smokes, it turns in. Okay. I'll try that. Springfield, Pennsylvania. Mike, hello. Hello, Dennis. Hi. You signed my Deuteronomy book at the Fuse with a light green. Did it have a special name? That's funny. I must admit, I don't remember the name of all the inks that I use, but it is a very fair question. Yeah, I I was going to, my comment was, maybe some people, I'm not talking from experience, I was a late bloomer. Maybe some people smoke and it masks or turns off the guilt switch before they have sex. Well, I think that's an interesting question. Uh, When my peers would tell me how much better sex was when high, I don't think it was to reduce guilt. I don't think they had any guilt. However, there are women who will, in fact, take something, have a drink or, or, or smoke a joint perhaps, if they're not committed to the guy that they're about to have sex with, in other words, like girls in the hookup culture at college, so it would it might be more applicable in those in those cases. All right, I thank you uh, for that. And Ruth Ann in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hello. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. The reason that I called is I was raised by Christian parents that really lived it and had a church that believed that we have a whole shape vacuum in our heart that only God can fill. And I never needed that other stuff because I had, Jesus had forgiven my sins. And when your sins are forgiven, you don't have to numb any pain that you caused others or others caused you. And it's, I'm not saying that every day was blissful. We go through trials just like everyone else. But another thing is, I think I never cared what other people thought because I knew that God approved of me. And so I didn't have to have a drink to go dancing and enjoy it. And what I found, and I, everybody knows that alcohol is a depressant, I used to go to parties where they drink, get high, do all kinds of stuff, and I drink my water. And I'll come, some of them were afraid and thought I was a narc, and they're like, no, she's just a Jesus freak. And I got to tell them about Jesus. Of course, I didn't get invited back too many times. But um, I just, I'm happy, even in the midst of horrible things, because this earth is not for our forever home. We're going to be in heaven By someday. the way, I'm curious, did you ever get married? Unfortunately, I did not pick well, yes. Wait, you did, oh, wait, you did not pick well and you did get married. 
Right. I see. Okay. All right. I, I got it. All right. We'll uh, we'll be back in a moment. Lay in the grass and kill some time. Looking like I'm in a daze. But it ain't no purple haze. I ain't stalled on what you think. Just an afternoon sun that's starting to sink. I ain't drunk on nothing you can buy. Just a gift from a woman and a look at her eye. What I'm on, you don't be much. It's a little goes a long way kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm breathing. Yeah, I'm feeling all right. I'm high on life. Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager, Happiness Hour. Sober fun is the subject. People, vast numbers of people, do not think you can have fun without some additive without being high, for example, or assume that only high is real, where the real fun is, addicts tend to believe that they have a fear, and if they do get sober, they won't have fun again. I suspect almost every addict has that particular fear, but a lot of people have it who are not addicts and who think that it's it's necessary to escape the world in order to be high. And there was so much in the world to get high on. And that's not just the cute line, a throwaway line. I, I actually believe that. I, I marvel when I think of all the things that bring me joy. And I think, don't any of them work for others? That's why I'm a big fan of hobbies and just interests in general. You know, I think one of the damaging aspects of modern life, the social media is is a killer because it takes away from the joy of real life, the, the real life joys you can have by preoccupying oneself in, in uh, the electronic world like that. But there's another thing that I think that uh, ruins kids ability to enjoy life, too much homework. Can't tell you the contempt I have for schools that assign a lot of homework. And uh, I don't have particular fondness for the parents who believe that it's important. You're depriving your children of exploring life. The purpose of life is not to get good grades in high school so as to get into a good college, contrary to what vast numbers of parents think. What's your purpose in life once you get into a good college? There is none. You realize that? You've lost your purpose. Your whole life has been get into a good college. Okay, you get into a quote-unquote good college. By the way, there are almost no good colleges, so it's an idiotic thing to begin with. But you, 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 mean, you don't mean good in any event. You mean prestigious. So your kid gets into a prestigious college, and then what? What's their next, uh, what's the purpose of life after that? They're now 21 years old. They've graduated the good college. Now what? High-paying job? Whoa, whoopee-doo. That's a biggie. So when did they have time? Again, I have to use my own life because it's the life I know best. I was very, 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 very lucky in that I thought clearly at a very, very young age. I did no homework, none, for four years of high school. 
graduated in the bottom 20% of my class, or as I often put it, the top 80%. Couldn't care less. It meant nothing to me. In the meantime, I did what I wanted, and I got high on music and on international correspondence. My hobby, one of my hobbies was shortwave radio listening. I mean, I, I developed so many joys of life instead of doing homework. It's, they have lasted with me my whole life. So it's, uh, it's worth thinking. What joys does your kid have? Homework is not one of them. Getting into a good college does not do for your ultimate happiness what celebrating life does. Very good. Thank you, Dennis. You're welcome. Uh, San Antonio and Margo, hello. Hello, Dennis. Hi. Thank you. Hi. Uh, the secret that no one tells you about having sober food is that it is a thousand percent more fun than being high on anything. Uh, my my drug of choice was alcohol, and I was so scared to lose a best friend that I had for 30 years if I gave it up, and it's the best thing that's ever happened in my life, so I'm very happy. There's so I do so much more now, and I don't know how I ever managed to do anything, honestly, because it was a full-time job with my drinking. Yep, yep. Well, I salute you. I salute every sober person. You you have done something, every one of you who has been who's chosen sobriety, you have conquered something that is equivalent to climbing Everest. I have tremendous admiration for every one of you. The odds are also that you have more wisdom than most people because you went through AA. 12-step programs have more wisdom than any university in the country with very few exceptions. Okay, Julie, Asheville, North Carolina, hello. Hi there. Um, I was just going to say that uh, hobbies, Successful, I think, uh, sober fun when you're a creator, when you're doing photography or gardening or, or making something, as opposed to at your point on uh, video games being amusement, you can be amused, high or drunk, whatever. But the, I, I don't see kids with the hobbies, as you said, like we used to have knitting, sewing. God, you say knitting or sewing to uh, a, 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 what is it, Gen Xer? <laughs> they, they may not even know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, yeah, um, there's a, that people don't sew anymore just really surprises me. Right. Well, they don't sew in, in anything. You're, I like your point because I, what I take from it is in hobbies, you're, you're the actor, in amusements, they're the actors. You're the acted upon. So we're both making that point, but in different ways, and it's a very important one. Okay. Think about the homework thing that I said, though. That's a biggie. Well, he said, you hey, Mr. Can you tell me how far a walk it is to the nearest bar? 
so I can turn around and run the other way. Got a Tennessee to tie one on. If stupid was a shirt, my sleeves would be long. I'm never too far from making my next mistake. Because it's hard to outrun the devil when he's sitting on your shoulders. And you can't feel the warmer side of life when your world's getting colder. You know I'm gonna be a better man for it when my dark days are over. But it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel this side of sober. And he said... Hi, everybody. I'm going to summarize your calls. Don't hang up. Otherwise, I won't know what you said. If you hang up, I lose your comments. Final segment of Sober Fun. That's the subject of today's happiness hour. Does your kid have sober fun? Other than video games or some other social media thing? Are they doing three, four, five hours of homework a night, wasting their time doing it? You think they're learning? You're fooling yourself. They're certainly not learning how to love learning, which is all that matters in the final analysis. I ought to do an hour on homework. God. All right, let's see here. Seattle Bill. Said hobbies all his life. That's right. Hobbies, I've talked about it often, and now I've put two and two together and shown you why it's so important to have. That's sober fun. Keith in Carrollton, Texas, has so much happiness and joy, he's been accused of being drunk. That's cute. I I hear you. And let's see. Castleberry, Florida. Kevin, if you can't be happy sober, you can't be happy unsober. Well, they think they're happy when they're not sober. That's the point. And what they have, there's a, there is an adrenaline rush. But it's not happiness. People who use drugs at a young age won't discover how to have fun when they are not on drugs. Stacy in Dallas, that's the point. That's correct. In Louisville, Kentucky, Scott is restoring a 65 Ford F100 while listening to me. Good man. that's, That's great. Okay, anyway, and Joyce and Mary, I thank you both as well. There is so much in life. If you need an artificial ingredient, it's a bad sign. Go to the Daily Wire, by the way, and click on Watch and see the trailer of my series of lectures there. They're life-changing, I hope, and I think. Now call in on any subject. King, send out a line of Wayne Gretzky along with Luke Robitaille and Dennis Prager. 
Repsky wins the face-off. He gives it to Robitaille. Robitaille gives it to Dennis Prager. Here's Prager to center ice with Gretzky. Two-on-one break. Gretzky back to Prager. He stumbles and falls. I'm not sure there are five things in life that bring Sean greater joy than that. Hi, everybody. This is the Ari Something Channel. Whatever it's about, about you, about me, about life, about death. Yes, but first. This is it. It's the hour. Whatever is on your mind, hour. And don't be offended if I don't take your call. If I drop it, it is not any in any way done to hurt your feelings. There could be a hundred reasons. Well, not a hundred. Could be five reasons why I'm not taking that call. One eight Prager seven seven six eight seven seven two four three triple seven six. Needless to say, calls on audio equipment, photography, cigars. Classical music or it's a fifth one. Oh, uh, it's painful. Fountain pen. <laughs> All of those are particularly welcome on this hour, whatever the whatever is on your mind hour. Okay, let's see here. We go to Los Angeles, the city that was once of angels, and Eddie. Hello, Eddie. Hi, Dennis. Hi. I'm a huge fan. Thank Um, you. At the very beginning of the pandemic, you said that lockdowns would cause mass destruction, and but you didn't know at the time that they would save any lives at all. And I, I mean, and with that approach to decision-making from the Bible? No, I, I can't, uh, I can't claim that it is. I read enough very early on to realize that the price being paid by lockdowns would be great and probably greater than any savings of life. And I had Sweden from a very early age as my my test case because they didn't lock down. And uh, they. I think I think you said that before Sweden decided not to lock down. And I, it was just one of those things I I heard you say once. And you didn't repeat it like you often do, you know, with good ideas. But I just thought it was brilliant. I mean, because it turned out that that was the right approach. Well, thank you for noting it. It means a lot to me that you noted. It's not for ego reasons. I I have my ego in check. I'm a very normal guy. Uh, The reason that is important to me is that I regularly take positions that are different from the dominant left at, at your university, high school, at the in the media, in medicine, and they have all turned out to be right. So I should earn your credibility. That's that's the reason. And the opposition, like the American Medical Association, should earn your scorn. 
I read very er I wrote very early on because I read very early on about the inevitable adverse consequences to humanity of the lockdowns. And it, it, it struck me that unless you had such a lockdown that the people would be never allowed out of their houses, which is what they tried in China and it didn't work. And so as soon as they got out of their houses, of course, people contracted COVID from one another. Since that is not an option to keep people indefinitely indoors, and even if that is, it's not. it was not worth it. Also, I believed, and still do, in therapeutics, like hydroxychloroquine with zinc. The fact that the New York Times mocks people who advocate ivermectin, for example, as a horse dewormer and only a horse dewormer, uh, only reinforces my belief that it's probably true. Because whenever there's a controversial subject, the New York Times is always wrong. It's not always wrong in every article, because it doesn't have an article always on a controversial subject. But when there is a left-right difference, the left is always wrong. And I have, I have the, uh, the backup. I tweeted it in April 2020. I kept reading about the hunger that would, uh, that would result from lockdowns, the shattered economy, the children being set back. When you think about what college-educated people supported, masking two-year-olds on airplanes, do you understand the cruelty as well as the idiocy of such a position? My heart broke for families that had to travel. How do you keep a mask on a two-year-old? Anyway, none of you, only the people who work with me saw my great new invention, the yarmulke mask. Should I put one on, gentlemen? Because some people can watch me right now, right? At the Salem News Channel, is that where you can see you can see the show? I am about to put on my famous yarmulke mask, because I always have one on with me. And here we go, ladies and gentlemen. The Dennis Prager invention from COVID. There you go. Now, you can hear it's muffled. I am behind a serious piece of cloth here. And the the uh, the joke is, uh, I you could pretty much get away with it. Am I right? You're cracking up, guys, but you got to admit it, it's effective. And there you go, the famous Yamalka mask. <laughs> uh, wow. All right. Next, uh, let's go to uh, you. Thousand Oaks, California, Nick, the famous Nick of Thousand Oaks. Hello. Yes, sir, Dennis. Yes. I belong to a church that uh, does not recommend its members vote. And it also, um, it, they make an exception for local issues like, like PTA, school bond, trash hauling, sewage disposal, but not on the, the, the issues that are facing the nation. And they all, another one of their supporting reasons is that it will 
um, bring division into the church. It will uh, people's political opinions will differ, and it'll cause conflict. And we're to remain united. And I've been speaking out somewhat against that. I think that in this country, which was founded on principles of uh, rights coming from God, and that the nation required a, a moral principle that informed citizenry to direct its course. I was stunned when a couple of weeks ago you said that in your synagogue you do not discuss politics. And if that's if that's appropriate, and I and I'm bringing in division into the church by bringing up these issues, they say it's okay to sigh and cry about the abominations in the land, but we can't do anything about it to discuss it. Well, all right, there are two separate issues that they're completely unrelated. Whether or not you vote and whether or not you use the pulpit uh, as a priest, minister, or rabbi to discuss politics. Uh, the, the advocacy of people not voting is uh, is incredible to me. I, I On what grounds would they do that? Uh and and well, as regards division, world, not... yeah. Well, no, no. I, I don't know. Well, I don't know. That's an excuse not to be morally involved. I think it brings shame on one's religion not to be morally involved in the crises of the time. Well, that, everything has been politicized. And yes, I, you're I right. It's very to tough. So, you, all right, you're, what's you're going on right. So, so look uh, there. I I have run Yom Kippur Rosh Hashanah services for 15 years, and some of them are, are now available to be viewed, actually. Whatever your religion or none, I promise you'll be deeply moved. And I... Uh, that service is a sort of refuge for people leaving left-wing rabbis. And... Uh, to a lesser extent, left-wing priests or, or pastors. So I wanted them to have a, quote-unquote, ironically, I'm using it, safe space. I believe that if I talk, in in that case, Judaism properly, people will draw the appropriate conclusions. If, if you understand the Bible, you cannot be a leftist. You have to pervert the Bible. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.